a Podcast One production. This is A Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their favourite things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain a genuine insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Sarah Wilson has had a high-profile, successful and varied career. Her many roles have included hosting the TV show MasterChef, editing Cosmo magazine and being the brains behind and face of the I Quit Sugar movement. A best-selling author, Sarah has recently written powerfully about anti-materialism and movingly about her challenges with anxiety. Which makes me want to ask first, Sarah, was the process of choosing your five enjoyable as intended (laughs) or did it make you anxious in any way? Um, It's a very pertinent question because one of the things I cover off in my discussions about anxiety is decisions. Um, They can be our undoing and primarily because it actually uses the same part of the brain, you know. um, Making decisions is primordial and so is anxiety, the fight or flight response, and one can exhaust the other. Um, I think you caught me on a really good day because I was actually able to rattle off five things. And I tell you what also helps is not actually owning a lot of things. So it sort of narrows things down a bit, right? Do you know what? I I was really guilty because I went off and read your fabulous book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, and halfway through I thought, oh, bloody hell, I'm putting this woman through torture. (laughs) (laughs) She says she doesn't like making decisions and I've asked her to make them. Um, It's very considerate of you, Nigel. Thank you for thinking about that. No, it was was an enjoyable process. Excellent. Well, that's how we we intend it to be. Without telling me what the item is yet, uh, what was the most difficult one for you to choose? Or, Or were they all easy? Film. The film. Ah, so we're going to start with the film, and I have to thank you because you chose Storm Boy, which, yeah. to my shame, I- I'd never seen. So I went off and watched it, and it's bloody fantastic, isn't it? Beautiful. It's, so tell us about the film first before why you chose it. It's a, a story of a of a Aboriginal boy, and I think it's down the south coast from memory. I yep. just really, to be honest, the reason why I find film so hard to to, to kind of recall is because I can get halfway through a movie before I realise I've actually seen it before. It, for some reason, I get very, very engrossed in a movie and after I walk out, I often don't have any memory of it. Right. Um, yeah, and I don't know what that's about. And I think there's people who remember movies and people who don't, right? And I can't remember actresses, actors' names. Um, but Storm Boy stayed in my mind because of the evocativeness of it. There was this sadness to it and there was this friendship with this pelican and, Mm. um, you know, it's funny. My best friend saw the movie quite recently as well as an adult and she saw it and she said, my God, that kid looks exactly like you did as a kid. Okay. Yeah, and I identified with the little boy and I kind of get it, like, just this kind of loner kid, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think that was probably it. It was a, it was a friendship with an animal and, and sort of, the, yeah, wistful, I suppose. It, it stuck in my mind more for the evocativeness. It's so beautiful and the pace, I, I love it. I mean, now I'd imagine my kids would be bored after five minutes. They'd be on the iPhones. That's, the, the pace, yeah. when he's floating on the raft, yeah. beautiful scenery, 
bugger all is happening, but it's entrancing. It's, and, and they've made, I, I mean, it's Jeffrey Rush, so I hope it's wonderful, but, that, but they've made a new one. Yes. And, and I hope they haven't sexed it up or sped it up. It doesn't need to be, you know, made faster or whizzy or have a car crash or a love scene. It, it, it's perfect how it was. That's right. I think the evocativeness is very much about nature and I think it's also about um, the sort of Aboriginal relationship with nature, which yeah. is about stillness. It's not about talking over the top of everything. It's about listening, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of stillness in that movie, as you say. And I, I, I agree with you. I really hope that it's not sexed up. But, yeah. Well, t- t- talking about sex is the author of, already. The, of, the, yeah, already, <laughs> of the kids' book, Colin Threel, I think he is. Yeah. He sold the rights to the film and he had one stipulation. Yeah. Just, just one. You can do what you want. Don't make it a sex comedy. Isn't that great? <laughs> and you go, what, why How would you think they're going to make it? Yeah. yeah. And, and Mr. Percival, the the, the, the real uh, pelican, yes. lived to thirty three. Is that right? Yeah. Gosh, you do your research. I, 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 I'm ashamed. But thank you for choosing it. I mean, yeah. I, I feel slightly embarrassed that I hadn't seen it before. And that's like an important Australian film. Yeah, I think I've almost answered why I chose it. But one of the other things was because it was the first movie I saw. The first movie. Yeah. Yeah. So hold on. Right. Is that because you didn't watch many movies as a kid or? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. We lived in the country. So it was, um, we didn't really kind of go into the movies very often. So that was, yeah, that, that's probably why. And also I had the book as well. So, so I hadn't seen your film, but you chose uh, the book that probably had the biggest influence on me of my entire life. Yeah. If, if there was only ever allowed to be one book on this earth, I would vote that it has to be Man's, Man's Search, Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning, Victor so, Frankl. Oh, so would you mind telling me a little bit about the book and before you tell me why? Yeah, it was a book that I picked up actually on a train when I was in the south of Spain and I, I kind of just came across it like literally on a train. Somebody had left it behind and it was didn't have a cover. The cover had been ripped off. And I did a hike. It was only, it was probably about five years ago. And I turned up to this town and I had the address of somebody who was a friend of a friend's father. And he was into hiking. So he was going to tell me about a hike I could do. And so I set off in this seven day hike with just a library bag, you know, like a satchel, a market satchel, you know, um, a bottle of water, um, a cucumber, Victor Frankl, my mobile phone, and a toothbrush. And so I hiked across um, Sierra Nevada for seven days, just going, this guy had kind of drawn a map for me and I went from town to town. It'd be sort of between seven and nine hours of walking a day. And I would eat three omelettes in some small town, you know, in the morning and um, just gorge myself to the point where I was like hallucinating from sort of, you know, food coma. And I'd guzzle all this water and coffee. And then off I'd go and just hike in the middle of, it was 40 degrees heat. Right. And I'd have a, a big bottle of water and a cucumber or an orange. And, um, at about midday, I'd lie under a tree somewhere, you know, sort of with a donkey, you know, mm. <laughs> and um, read Victor Frankl. Like Nigel says, it is probably the book I recommend. Anyone who has lived a few years on this planet needs to read it, you mm. know, to feel <laughs> to feel a bit more grateful about their own lot, I suppose. But Victor Frankl was a, a psychiatrist of sorts and he, uh, within nine days of leaving Auschwitz, where he'd been, I think, for four years, he wrote this book. Um, it's a very short book, but it's essentially about resilience. Mm. And he analysed 
who were the men in the camp that survived and who didn't? And it's an interesting... I almost don't want to give away what the no. conclusion is because you need to read it to ha- kind of have your mind blown. Um, but it's a beautiful book that goes to the heart of the human condition and character, mm. you know, which is kind of the thing that I live my life to. I don't live my life to happiness. Um I live it to the aim of pursuing character. Hmm. And um, he provides a framework and a sort of a gentle hug for anyone who's Mm. wanting to do that. So, yeah, it was a really interesting thing to read because I was walking through this desert. I got lost several times. I got attacked by dogs. I have a thing for being attacked by dogs in the middle of nowhere, but I guess if you put yourself out there in the middle of a foreign country in that way, it will happen. Um, You know, I would read it under the tree each afternoon and there was this kind of juxtaposition of hiking for I don't know what reason, it's what I do, and almost pushing myself to the limit because I'd arrive in these villages, the next village sort of, I don't know, five o'clock and I would rinse out all my clothes in the shower. I'd just find somewhere to stay for the night, hang them out in the sun and fall asleep and by the time I woke up they were, you know, absolutely dry, get dressed, go down and eat a three-course meal and half a carafe of wine, Mm. you know, stocking myself up for the next day. It was quite a nice routine. But, yeah, I'd read it and it was kind of um, almost like a – and I actually do mention it in that anxiety book. It's that kind of parallel of just trudging your way through and work, doing the work and grinding your way through hardship. Now, I can't parallel hiking through the Sierra Sierra Nevada with – with, you know, being in Auschwitz <laughs> for four years. But I think I think Viktor Frankl wrote it for all of humanity, didn't he? He wrote yeah. the book um, because I think pain is pain and um, we experience it in all different ways. And I don't think he even distinguishes the hardship of a concentration camp with other kind of pain. It, it, it's a, just an astonishing, mm. astonishing book. The, the original German title is uh, Nevertheless Say Yes to Life. Oh, is that right? Isn't that incredible? Particularly self-helpy, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it sounds with an exclamation mark and maybe the word. Can you? I don't. Am I allowed to swear on this? You can do whatever you like. If you just chuck the word "fuck" or maybe even throw a mention of Paris in there, you've yeah. got yourself a bestseller. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I always feel sorry for other self-help writers because you can't top that. It, it, it's it's been done. There is yeah. no there is no need for another one. You, Anthony, love you dearly, Mr. Mm. Robbins, but it's been written in 1946 by Victor, so we don't really need the firewalk. I mean, it's fine if you want to do it, but yeah. So I, I studied theology at university. Oh, did you? And the Victor Frankel book knocked me out because if you believe that the world is meaningless, that mm. can be quite bleak, which I tend to. Yes. But if you believe that it's man, as in humans, job to create meaning, then it's not bleak. Mm. You go, it is meaningless, therefore that's encouraging. Therefore you make, it's up to Mm. you to make the meaning, not to let the church or your parents or the government Mm. give you meaning. Now your your song, I am very conflicted by. (laughs) So you chose Maxwell's Silver Hammer, which is regarded by most people who know the Beatles as the sole reason why they broke up. <laughs> Not Yoko Ono, it's no. this bloody song. It's so, horrible. So tell me about the song and tell me why you chose it. Um, well, it's, yes, I'm aware that it's a terrible song um, and that's and I chose it because I my memory of it is just terrible, but it's a segue, right, to a discussion. Um, so we, as I mentioned, we grew up in the bush, yep. the country. The country. It sounds evocative, let me say. We grew up in the dirt. It was um, the middle of the drought. It was on a hill it had rocks. We had some goats tethered to trees because 
we couldn't afford fences and they were milk and meat and it was just stinking hot and there were just dust storms, you know, all all of summer was a dust storm and um, it was bleak as all hell. I mean, people, you know, think of me as, you know, growing up, I don't know, riding horses or something, you know, ponies. Sure. I was not a pony girl. Um, and um, on Saturdays we, in summer, we would go to Little Athletics on mass. That was the one outing. And we'd come back and the rest of the afternoon was spent cleaning the house right. and doing housework and just, you know, you know, being dad's slave basically. And dad, to try to make it more of a chipper experience, would put his record collection on. And the one that sort of stuck for me was Maxwell's Silver Hammer. The, the cheery song about a serial killer. <laughs> It's it's, it's 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 remarkably apt. Uh, yeah, they go, uh, those lyrics of that song. It's a bit like Pretty Woman. Think... You enjoy the film, but then you think it's about a prostitute. It's terribly bleak. You go, it's yeah. about a serial killer. It's yes. it's, it's, it's a sing along la de la. Yeah, you know, down came the hammer and made sure he was dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, I I just thought it summed up just that period in my life. Um, and you know, my brothers and I, as a result, my God, you know what we can't do with a tin of brasso. Yeah. You know, and it was funny because we had this, um, no, bless mum and dad, they tried and they worked so hard. Were they farmers? or, or No, they- no. Dad was a public servant and he would ride a motorbike into Canberra for work each day and mum looked after us and the goats. Right. And we'd commute to a local primary school, a country school, and then we commuted into Canberra for high school. Um, so like I said, it was an allotment of dirt. Um, so, and it was just where, where mum and dad could afford to live, you know? So, um, we just, we existed out there, but it was, it was, they had a sense of pride, I suppose. And we, we, we didn't really, we kind of had beanbags to sit on and patches of carpet that dad got from neighbours who were ripping up carpet and we used to follow the council trucks around Canberra and pick up, um, dad would, they'd be digging up the, the pavement you know, the footpaths. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how he got wind of these. Dad was pre-Google, but he was like the Google, you know. He just knew the house was bought off the back of a truck and it was cyclone-proof, built after Cyclone Tracy, right? Just And he got it cheap and he built it and kind of the concrete was from these dug up, <laughs> dug up paths. Um, so we used to just collect stuff and everything got reused and, and that kind of thing. But um, the house was very basic. It didn't have any floor coverings, like it was concrete. We had no curtains um, and no sort of heating apart from a potbelly stove in the middle. And um, did, you, did you have to share rooms with, or did you have your own yeah, room? Yeah. Um, at one point I got my own room. Um, Dad sort of subdivided a bedroom. But, yeah, I, in the early, we all shared, you know. it was. Um, and then when we moved into Canberra, it was a smaller house. So mum and dad lost it all and we moved back into Canberra and... Um, yeah, I sort of moved out shortly after then because my little brother was born. It was a, a smaller house. So, um, but it was a very, yeah, we, we did everything together. And as a result, my brothers and I have a grunt kind of relationship. People find it quite weird. We don't talk to each other on the phone and we don't do presents. Our family have never done presents. But we we do these big bike trips and hiking trips together and we don't sort of need to talk, you know. We wrestle. That's how we communicate. We wrestle. Do you get together for family Christmases or not? Or yeah, we do. What we do, um, we have a sort of thing where um, we quite often all chip in, and because we don't buy presents, we chip in and get a house down the south coast or something like that. And it's sort of that kind of and wrestle. 
um, yeah, so it's kind of that kind of a relationship. I think any of the in-laws that come into the family find it quite weird and it's a very masculine vibe. Right. It was, it was, yeah, we all played boy games and I was, you know, even I, I never owned a doll. Right. And so, never so, owned a teddy bear or a blanket, like not once. And, and were you a tomboy or, or did you resent the fact that you'd never had the Barbie doll or whatever? I don't think I knew any better. I think Oblivion um, kind of protected me. So it, once I got to high school, and th- I, 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 I write about this in, in, in sort of some detail, or a little bit of detail I suppose, I just didn't have friends. <laughs> right. So I didn't have a reference point to sort of say that that was weird. Um, but yes, in hindsight, you probably would say I'm a, I was a tomboy. I just didn't do girl things. Sure. Um, and I probably today, I mean, I did, you know, downhill mountain bike racing and things. That's kind of just what I naturally fell into. It wasn't like I was seeking to be a tomboy or I had an identity issue, you yeah, know. And uh, did you dream, so you're in, you're in the, the Dust Bowl. Oh, did yes. And, the, and the, the house cleaning was mum and dad trying to have some pride. Yeah. And um, I don't know. There was, and that's just what we did, but God, we hated it. So it did, was it, it, it was sort of four hours, but it felt like ten hours. I hated it. And it was just a way I'd just say to mum and dad, it's only gonna get dusty. Like it's the biggest waste of time. You know, I'd I'd spend the whole time giving them a lecture on where they were going on in, wrong in life. That was kind of my role in the family, actually. And and, and did you dream of going to the big smoke, be it New York oh, or yes. Sydney? Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah. Um my reference point was just out. Anywhere but here. Yeah, because I didn't have many reference points of the outside world. So I used to climb, there was a tree I used to climb and I'd sit up there and daydream. And I would literally, I think this is where my various addictions come from. I used to sit there and listen out for a car coming up the driveway. It would happen once a month. You know, I lived in hope. And sometimes (laughs) it was, you know, somebody had taken a wrong turn, you know. Um, Yeah, I I did. I dreamt dreamt big time of all the things I was going to do when I... When I left the dust, the dust bowl, and and, and let leave you did you, you're very well travelled, and you're the place that you've chosen. I, I used to live in Belgium, bizarrely for three yeah. years. You chose uh, Dam, six uh, k away from Bruges. Yes, which if you were to ask me uh, before this episode to guess where you were going to choose, I wouldn't have guessed. Lovely though the people are, I wouldn't have guessed Dam. Could you yeah. describe the town and then tell the fabulous story behind why I you've chosen it? I have to tell you why I've chosen it um, to explain why I chose the town. I chose the town for the story because I thought it was yes. a, good, a good story to tell. Um, it, it was it was probably it was a place I stumbled upon. Um, I took off sort of at eighteen and travelled around Europe and. Um, I actually, funnily enough, sitting in a radio station studio as we are, I won a modelling competition which was going to take me to Europe to model. But I got there and I was told to lose just um, like a centimetre off my body over Christmas. Height? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Make yourself shorter, woman. They're entirely unrealistic but not that unrealistic. Um, So I went up to Yorkshire and visited an old primary school friend and just drank Guinness and put on about 10 kilos. So that was the end of my modelling career. So what am I going to do now? I went and travelled around Europe just kind of aimlessly um, and just got work as an au pair and things like that. But um, I went to Amsterdam and hired a bike from the railway station and just rode every day. Um, and then I ended up in, I went down to Bruges and I had uh, half a day to kill. So I walked out just along one of the canals and I think about 45 minutes, maybe an hour, maybe a bit more, I can't remember, out to this little village called Dam. And I 
didn't know what it was. I just arrived. It had a church and a, a museum and that was about it. And I was wandering around and I was, I was quite, I don't know, lonely, you know, um, but sort of checking things out. And this person came up to me and spoke to me in French and said, um, we're making this documentary on this famous um, Flemish artist and um, he's seen you and would like to illustrate your face. And um, this is all in French and I understood a little bit of French from reading a French textbook in a library in London above the pub that I worked in, you see. So that's how I got the job in Corsica as well. Um, so I said, okay, I've got nothing else to do. So this guy came over. He would have been, I think, in his seventy, like early 70s. He was just old. And he set up an easel and he sketched super, super fast about 20 pictures of my face. And I just sort of sat there and he gave me one of these sketches and signed it. And um, they were doing this documentary and this is pre-internet, of course. And they said, well, would you come back in, I think October it was, where he's going to turn it into this big brass statue that's going to go here and we're going to make the documentary about him making it. And he's, you know, and they said, would you come back? And they gave me an address and a time and said, come back. And of course I didn't. I had other things to do. Um, And, you know, there's no way I could contact them to say, sorry, won't turn up, you know, won't be there. Um, I never thought about it again. And then only a couple of years ago, the story came back to me and I thought, oh, I could probably go on Google Maps and find that town. So I'd forgotten the name of the town. I'd forgotten it all. And so um, I could just make out the name of the artist on his signature. It's quite hard to read. Um, I think it's Charles Duport or Charles Dupont or something like that. I think I told you the name of it anyway. Uh, Delport. Yeah, thank you. And so um, I went on to Google Maps and looked at Bruges and went, I, I've got a really good sense of direction. I went, I know the direction, which canal I walked out on. And I went, it was that one. And so I worked out what 45 minutes would be. And I went, oh, it must be that village. And then I Googled that guy's name in that village. And what do you know? Um, up popped on Google Images a whopping great rusty green bronze statue of my face. I think it's about seven foot high in triplicate. That, that's just such an amazing thing to... A, it's a great story, but amazing thing to happen to you. So, so usually, ooh, I got spotted for being beautiful, so can you be in this shampoo advert or something? Yeah. You got spotted for being looking nice on a park bench in Belgium, and there's a permanent piece of art. Yeah. That, I mean, they've got your nose wrong. You've got your nose in the air. But apart from that, <laughs> I think it's quite a nice night. Ang- he angled my face probably. And remember, I was a lot younger there. But, yeah, isn't it strange? Oh, I, I just think it's... But it even gets weirder because I wrote a blog post about it and all pe- people loved the, the intrigue of the story. Yeah. And somebody went, oh, my um, mother is Flemish and she remembers seeing the documentary. Right. Right. So it does exist somewhere. And I... I so you will be on film being sketched? Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, I presume so. But then I was um, at a party um, and these sort of arty Europeans were at this party and there was a person there who was a historian from from Belgium and I went, oh, I've got a story for you. And I told him the story and went, oh, yeah, he's really w- well known and he died. Um, and I went, yeah, no, he died a couple of years ago. Um, so he, he, he knew the story as well. So, so I've got the sense that you should in some way like have have the sculpture. Oh, you know it, it's, yeah. it's it's such a great. Uh, it's, it's a shame a, I'm not a materialist, isn't it? Because well, ah, you know. Well, yes, well, indeed, <laughs> and, I, and I suspect that might segue onto your onto your fifth choice. Yes, uh, I'll ask you that after the break when I return uh, on Five of My Life with Sarah Wilson. 
This is The Five of My Life with Nigel Marsh. Having done a few of these now, I'm fascinated by the chronology of people's choices. Uh, So I I sort of look down like a bit of a nerd. And so your your film was made in 76, your book was written in 46, your your song was recorded in 69, and for my chronology, you, you were in Dam in Belgium probably in the 1990s. Yeah, early. Early. I'm 44. All of those are from the previous century... And I'm imagining, because you've chosen your green shorts, unless you've changed, uh, your green shorts is your possession. Yes. Uh, and I'm imagining they're from the 21st century. Uh, or maybe not. How long have I had them for? 11 years. Yeah, they are. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so tell me about these thing, this item, and tell mm. me why you have chosen a pair of shorts. Well, I think I... Well, it's because it's become a thing that people get to have kind of know me for. It's kind of strange. Like I've been in um, London riding on a Boris bike, you know, to to an appointment and I've been wearing those green shorts and people have, somebody's yelled out, Sarah Wilson. Uh, So so, so just to explain, so so you wear these a lot. So they are. Yes. There are, I think it was when I was editor of Cosmo and I was in LA and um, I, I had to get a pair of shorts or something. And so there were the, it was an American outlet sale. I had a slight problem with the sweatshop thing, but they'd corrected it just kind of recently. And so I bought this just pair of cotton green shorts, right? So, so running shorts. Running shorts. Right. Okay. Quite short with white sort of trim on them. Got it. And funnily enough, I mentioned athletics. There's 21,000 segues going on here. Um, they look exactly like my little athletic shorts from when I was about nine, which dad just thinks is hilarious because he's still got my little athletic shorts, right? Sure. Uh, Queen being little athletic shorts. Anyway, um, so I just wore them and I wore them and I wore them because I I just don't buy fashion. Even when I was editor of Cosmo, um, I just didn't engage in that at all. And I tend to wear the same thing over and over again. Um, and I wore these shorts and I just I only had one pair of shorts and so that's just what I wore. And I did a lot of running and a lot of, you know, I used to go in sand running competitions. I even used to go in mountain bike competitions wearing these shorts. And... Um, they started, I remember I was I was hiking with a friend and she just went, oh, Sarah, she was behind me. <laughs> she ah. said, they're just obscene. So she, I think um, after three or four years, she went and bought a second pair for me. Um, exactly the same. Exactly right. the same because they're just a standard item. And then um, the same thing happened about another four years later. Um, and, in fact, it was my 40th. So my 40th, the staff again just went, this is ridiculous. And one of them went and snuck into my house, got the old pair, framed them, got them framed with, you know, the hole in the crotch and all of this kind of thing and bought me another pair. Now, I'm four years later, um, I've just worn out the final pair and I, you'll be glad to know I reuse them. I use them as my bike rag to, to clean the, the chain. Um, and... Um, of course, American Apparel have gone out of business, <sighs> right? They've folded. But my friend in New York happened to find um, a second-hand pair and sent them to me. So I actually am wearing them in my – in fact, I think I'm wearing the green shorts in every single one of my books just because it's what I wear and I happen to be wearing it when the photo's been taken. Sure. So I'm wearing this latest pair, which are a little bit on the small side or, or either that or I've grown, yeah. um, in, in my latest book, Simplicious Flow. And that links because if I get it correct, you don't just wear them because you like them. You are big on anti-materialism. Yes. Right. So for the last uh, eight years, um, or yeah, I I lived out of 
for eight years I lived out of two suitcases um, and then for periods of time, like I think that trip that I was in Greece for, you know, I was doing a book tour and doing, you know, selling my book into the UK and things like that and um, I lived out of a, a, out of a 15 kilo backpack um, for five months. So, um, and that was, that included everything, including a fancy dress outfit for a 50th birthday in France. Um, and yeah, so that's how I've always lived and I'm wearing clothes, you know, still from when I was 18. Um, and it's just become this way. And I mean, I went for 13 months. I wrote a story once about going for 13 months without buying anything but food and toilet paper. And then I went for, and then I just went, oh, and I went shopping well, it's quite a funny story, actually. I was in Westfield and the credit card company rang me and I was in the toilet and I was like, yes. And they said, we've noticed some unusual spending activity on this credit card. <laughs> and I went, no, it's, you know, because I went in and shopped like a man. I bought a pair of jeans, a pair of shoes, a yeah. bro, you know. Um, and then um, I went for another nine months, you know, and I, I would say I would say that, yeah, quite regularly it would be six, nine, 12 months without buying anything. It's generally I've got to buy running shoes, undies, bra. Right. And but everything else I kind of get away with. So I my uh, sad, not as impressive version of that is I last time I washed my hair was October two thousand and six. Oh, and I get a little thrill from the hundred bucks I've saved over the twelve years, and, yes. and, and the lack of environmental damage that I haven't done. And that so offsets I, your carbon miles when you fly to the UK, I'm sure. But but I feel guilty because <laughs> uh, I've been married for twenty six years, and we've had the same barley knockoff table for a hundred pounds yeah for you know four kids it's been beaten into you know it's like sticks of rubble yes and, and we and we've just bought another table so I bet it's, it's a, not as good it's not as good but i i i, I really admire the, the the sentiment and the motivation not to be wasteful yeah and, and, and there's lots of environmental stuff where they're trying to prove the science you know don't prove the science just it, it's innate human nature that being less wasteful well it's just a good idea isn't it I mean, well, you have to it's, take it's to extremes, actually even but, more know. than that because, um, and this is the bit where I can mention my book, right? Yeah, you mention it as much as you want. Simplicious Flow, and it's kind of the, the final book in my series of I Quit Sugar books. And um, it's the first zero-waste cookbook in the world, at so, least. So how you made it. You, you, the uh, whole yeah, making of the that's book. That's right. Uh, yeah. Not only are the recipes zero waste, but the recipes are written in such a way that it reflects the way that I actually made them for the book, if that makes sense. Yes, so I yes. tell the story. And so people are there with me in the studio as I as I make these things. So, you know, um, some muffins that we made from sort of four weeks earlier are in the freezer. And rather than making a crumble from scratch, I just, you know, I go and pull out the frozen muffins and crumble them into a pan with some coconut oil and a bit of cinnamon for some extra oomph and there you go, you know. And so that's how I show people how to do it. So it's a, it's the big thing on the big tagline on the cover of the book is this is not a normal cookbook because I blow apart the whole formula, which is completely wasteful. Um, And, you know, I live this way. I don't own a car. I ride a bike everywhere. And the reason flow is in the title is because for me, you know, coming back to, all right, yes, it's what you should do, but it's also like philosophically and aesthetically, it's just glorious. Like to have your life in flow without, I just watch the palaver people create for themselves by owning shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then People say, oh, you must have watched The Minimalists, you know, that documentary on Netflix. And I'm like, yeah, and I have fundamental issues with it because, well, for one of the opening scenes, they're driving down a freeway with takeaway coffee cups on the dashboard. Like, 
you know, 101, right? Mm. Um, but their stuff, their thing is about throwing stuff out. I'm like, don't throw anything out until you've worn it out and you've repurposed it at least five times, you know? Um, so it's a completely different mentality. Like I also hike all the time. And part of the reason I hike and then share pictures of it on Instagram is to try to kind of promote a message where go for a hike rather than go to a shopping mall. It is so much of a, it's a much happier experience, you know. And um, so, yeah, it's an aesthetic thing. It's, a, it's I'm trying to, trying to shift the mindset. And the recipes in this book, they're not like really grim. It's not like it's, you know, sort of mung bean stew and, you no, know. It's, it's a great book. My, my eldest daughter, Grace, is already using it uh, and try, trying yeah. to do, which for me, uh, you know, as my dad said, there's none so virtuous as a, as a reformed whore, is I, I would <laughs> chuck, you know, everything. I'd use 10% of whatever it is, chuck out the 90%, so sue me now. Uh, I'm trying to. I'll try to, I'll try to remain calm uh, yeah. while you're telling me this, yeah. <laughs> it, it's watching Gracie making them the meal and, and using as you write, trying to use everything. It's brilliant. It, yeah. it, it, it's so, so it's a wonderful it's philosophy. It's a sport. It's yeah. actually creative. It actually, so yes, this book kind of works to, it turns the whole thing on its head. So it works to kind of almost like meal plans where you get a shopping list as opposed to ingredients list and everything in that shopping list gets used to make one, two, three, four dinners or five weekday meals, um, weekday lunches or whatever it might be. And I've got a couple of dinner parties in there where it's less than 10 bucks a head, you know, and it's like three courses and it's super fancy sounding, but it's actually not. And it only uses eight ingredients for the whole thing. So um, it kind of utilised all my creative um, urges, I suppose. You know, I, I um, have a very mathematical brain and I studied um, – quantum physics and, you know, in, in California when I was 21 and, and, and that whole thing of just kind of, you know, piecing things together, you know, that's going, oh, I could use this for that. I mean, this coffee cup I've got sitting here, which is my keep cup, is um, an old jar that I inherited from somewhere and all the elastic bands from my kale and my asparagus and, you know, um, they're wrapped around it and that becomes the sort of silicon holder you know what, the, the minimalism movement has become another material movement. People go and buy a keep cup. They go and buy storage facilities for their Scandi furniture that they've bought because it has a minimalist look, right? And I'm like, don't buy, kind of repurpose and recreate yeah. and, and kind of fend. Fending is a form of creativity and also rule breaking. Like, you know what, there are so many bloody rules in this world now. If you can do this, like for me it's a form of saying up yours, you know, I'm not playing by this game, sure, you know, sure. I'm not buying into it. So it's a cookbook I've always wanted to write but I've had to become a bestseller before I had permission to be able to do it. Oh, truth be told. Good on you. And, and thank you for sharing your fire. I really appreciate you coming in. That There's always a trick question, which is becoming oh. less of a trick question. Yes. As, uh, the, people the, catch the, on to people it. People catch on to it. Uh, um, is if uh, you had a magic wand and I could get anybody, uh, who would you want to be the next guest on Five of My Life? Who would you like to hear their choice? Oh, well, Russell Brand is Russell Brand. the thinking woman's crumpet, in my opinion. Lock it in. Russell, Russell Brand it is Sarah thank you so much for coming on Five My Life thank you The Five of My Life was presented by me Nigel Marsh created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia producer Alex Mitchell sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish 
For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Five of My Life on Apple Podcasts.